A passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 18. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be unified in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The word of the Lord. It is so good to have all of you with us, and uh, I'm grateful to say Brett Canode, who made the uh, video introduction that you just saw, is safely back from the Middle East, where his uh, video camera was uh, put to good use in uh, recording uh, ministry to refugees throughout that area. We're glad to have you safely uh, back, Brett. This morning, as uh, I think you probably already know, we're beginning a study of the Apostles' Creed. But before we begin, I'd like to share an account I recently read that comes from about 1900 in England. And the editor of an English newspaper uh, got a copy of his own paper early one morning on the streets of London after it was already for sale and uh, opened it up to find to his shock an embarrassing and unintentional uh, typographical mix-up of two stories. Um, one story was about a patented pig-killing and sausage-making machine. The other was about a gathering that had been held in honor of a local clergyman, uh, the Reverend Dr. Mudge, at which he was presented a gold-headed cane. And to his utter shock, when he read the story, here's what he read. Several of Dr. Reverend Dr. Mudge's friends called upon him yesterday and after a conversation, the unsuspecting pig was seized by the hind leg and slid along a beam until he reached the hot water tank. Thereupon he came forward and said that there were times when the feelings overpowered one, and for that reason, he would not attempt to do more than thank those around him for the manner in which such a huge animal was cut into fragments was simply astonishing. The doctor concluded his remarks when the machine seized him, and in less time than it takes to write it, the pig was cut into fragments and worked up into a delicious sausage. The occasion will long be remembered by the doctor's friends as one of the most delightful of their lives. The best pieces can be procured for 10 pence a pound, and we are sure that those who have sat so long under his ministry will rejoice that he has been treated so handsomely. Well, reminds us of the importance of getting the story straight. And that is what the Apostles' Creed is all about. 
I would suspect that most here this morning, uh, many at least, could recite part, if not all, of the Apostles' Creed, because many of us heard it growing up, uh, perhaps if we attended a church. The Apostles' Creed is the oldest and the best known of Christian creeds. Uh, There are some indications that at least parts of it were in use as early as 175 A.D., and in the form we know it today, we know it was certainly written by 700 A.D. It's been used around the world, different nations, and across all Christian traditions, whether Catholic, Protestant, Orthodox. The creed has united all believers in Jesus Christ for many, many centuries. It's often been used to instruct uh, candidates for baptism so that those coming to be baptized might actually recite the creed as their statement of faith. It's been used as a teaching tool. And so in our study, we're going to focus on what it means. Because while it's good to be able to recite the Apostles' Creed, it's far more important to understand it, to understand what the various phrases mean, and to know why it's important to understand that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit why it's important to understand that he really was born of the Virgin Mary. Why these things are essential uh, pillars of our faith. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to focus on what the creed teaches us so we can understand and appreciate it uh, far more when we recite it in the future. Now the passage that Abby read this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just a bit of background on this part of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the Corinthians, this first letter to the Corinthians, uh, with several purposes in mind. He begins by commending them for all that God was doing among them and that they had been enriched with every spiritual gift. But then he goes on to start correcting them because there were divisions in the church. There were lawsuits one against another, There were uh, divisions when it came to taking the Lord's Supper. And here in the first verses that we see this morning, there were preferences for certain teachers, and it was causing them to divide from one another. So the Apostle Paul uses the occasion to teach them and to teach us that we should be united in the essential truths of the gospel. And you see this in verse 10 when he writes, I appeal to you, brothers... By the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. There are certain things that all Christians, whatever church you're part of, all true followers of Jesus should agree upon. Certain things about which we should be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. If we looked at the New Testament as a whole, we would see that there's often an emphasis on guarding and reinforcing the essential truths that have to do with the the gospel. Contending for the faith, as one writer puts it. At the same time, the Apostle Paul brings teaching about having a certain liberty in things that are not essential. 
Because even in the early Christian church, there were already practices that Christians disagreed about. Whether to eat meat, some felt you you shouldn't eat meat, things like that. And in those things, the Bible calls for, for liberty. But in the essential truths, the ones that are really reinforced for us in the Apostles' Creed, there's to be there's to be agreement. Later, writing to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul stresses that we should know those truths that are of, in his words, first importance. In chapter 15, he writes, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered you as of First importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. The Gospel of Jesus has certain key truths that are of first importance. And those are things about which every Christian should be united in the same mind, and in the same judgment. If we were to look at the Apostles' Creed, and and in several minutes we will look at it on the screen, we would see uh, certain uh, uh, qualities about the Creed, certain marks. One is that it's Trinitarian. In other words, it speaks of God as Trinity, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we'd also see, if we're looking at the Creed as a whole, that the weight of the statements pertain to the Son, Jesus. That He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. That He was born of the Virgin Mary. That He suffered under Pontius Pilate. That He was crucified, died, buried, raised on the third day, ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. We'd see the, the weight of the creed given to what we might call the essential components of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And these are the things that Paul says are of first importance, things about which we should be agreed. Now, he also teaches that we should avoid the human tendency to be divided from other believers over lesser things. And that was what was happening already in the early Corinthian church. People were being divided over things that were, were not essential truths. They were relatively insignificant. He writes, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul. Or I follow Apollos. I like his teaching better. Or I follow Cephas, Peter. Or I follow And he says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course you weren't. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. He's not saying baptism is unimportant, but he's saying, I don't want you divided in these silly factions over who baptized you. Christ is not divided. So he's calling them to agree on the central essential truths, but avoid this tendency to be divided over lesser things. In our church here at River Oaks, 
we hold fast to what we believe are essential truths of the gospel. But we may differ and we do differ on lots of things that are not essential truths of the gospel. We have differences in our church uh, about when a person should be baptized. As a, as a believer later in life or as an infant, there are different opinions uh, regarding the return of Jesus, uh, matters that have to do with the end times, the, the last days, different views about the, the operation of spiritual gifts in the church. But we agree on the essential things. And we try to embrace, I hope we do, the motto of the EPC, the, the church body of which we're a part, and you'll see it on the screen, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and all things charity or love. Now, that saying is not original with the evangelical Presbyterian church. If you grew up in a Moravian church, which I'm sure some of you did, if you're from the Winston area, it's used, been used by the Moravian church. And apparently, it, it even predates the Moravian church. But I think it well expresses, and I think it's, it's so beloved because it does express the general teaching of Scripture that we should be united in the essential truths of the gospel. But in non-essentials, there should be liberty. We shouldn't force everybody to think the way we think about things of lesser importance, non-essential things. And in all these things, love, charity, love one for another. Now, if you're wondering, well, what are the essential beliefs at River Oaks? What are some of those views we hold here? If you go to our website, um, uh, uh, under About Us, who we are rather, it'll say who we are, and you click on that, immediately you'll see beliefs. And you'll see seven statements of belief that have to do uh, with the deity of Jesus Christ, with one God, our Creator, um, with salvation by grace through faith. The, the uh, seventh one is interesting. And I don't think it's one that would be embraced by all churches, but it's embraced by ours. The seventh one reads this way. The Lord Jesus commands all believers to proclaim the gospel throughout the world and make disciples of all nations. Obedience to the Great Commission requires total commitment to Him who loved us and gave Himself for us. He calls us to a life of self-denying love and service, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're an outreach-focused church, adhering to, trying to hold fast to Jesus' call to take the gospel to the whole world. So what have we seen so far? We should be united in the essential things, in essentials unity. We should have liberty in non-essential things and not separate or divide from other believers, not create factions in the church over these lesser uh, ideas. And in all things, we should have love. Now, there's a third thing that Paul notes in this first chapter of 1 Corinthians. And that is, we should recognize that God's unchanging truth, the essentials of the gospel that the Apostle Paul is calling them back to, 
God's unchanging truth is going to seem foolish to many. And so he writes, writes it this way. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, is he saying that baptism is not important? No, it's very important. He taught the need to baptize. Jesus commanded us to baptize. However, it's not the most essential thing, the central thing. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross, and that's his way of referring to the gospel, the word of the cross, the message about the cross, is folly to those who are perishing. It's going to seem foolish to the world around us. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so he's saying, I don't want to be known for using fancy, eloquent words. I just want to preach the word of the cross because that is where the real, genuine power of God to save lies. Now, he mentions that if you hold to that, you're going to be thought foolish by some, by many perhaps, in the world around us. This past week on Monday, we, uh, we didn't celebrate, but we remembered on 9-11, the events of September 11, 2001, which brought about dramatic change in our nation and our world. Um, since that day, religious extremism has taken on new meaning. And to describe someone's religious views as extreme carries a different connotation and would be uh, a serious, serious criticism. But recent research on the views of Americans reveals rapidly, rapidly changing views about some of the core essential beliefs that are held by Christians. And some of those core essential beliefs held by Christians expressed in the essentials that I just referred to are now viewed by many in America, in some cases the majority, as extreme, religiously extreme. Recently uh, I read a book I referred to it a couple weeks ago, but I'll mention it again. It's called Good Faith, Being a Christian When Society Thinks You're Irrelevant and Extreme. And it's, it consists of research by the Barna Group. The Barna Group is a large Christian-based uh, research group studying religious trends in America. And so the, the president, David Kinnaman, uh, co-authored this with a man named Gabe Lyons based on their research about rapidly changing views in the United States of America about various aspects of religion. Uh, for example, uh, in their survey where they attempted to, to uh, point out what people viewed as extreme, they found this. 60% of all adults in America and 83% of those who call themselves atheists or agnostics believe that evangelism, one of the central actions of Christian conviction, 
is extremist. That is trying to convert someone to your faith. And Jesus did say, go into all the world and preach the gospel to everybody. And I just read to you one of our seven core essentials, and that is the Great Commission to, to uh, go in love with the message of the gospel to the whole world. But 60% of adults in America today would say that is an extremist view. Interestingly, two out of five adults, 40%, believe it's extreme to quit a good-paying job and to pursue mission work in another country, as all of our, virtually all of our missionaries have done. Now, the authors point to the, the reason for these rapidly changing views when they write, we believe the problem in our culture is our culture's lack of a shared center or foundation. They write, the bottom is dropped out. There's no center any longer. There's a giant vacuum in the middle of our moral and spiritual lives. And they would explain that further by saying it has to do with uh, belief in, or lack of belief in the authority of the Bible as a foundation for spiritual and moral beliefs. And then they stress something that is uh, really remarkable and points to how quickly things have been changing in the United States of America. They surveyed people as to their view of the authority of the Bible, the authority of Scripture as God's Word, as our foundation. And here's what they found. Among elders in the United States, and the word is capitalized because it refers to a category that they use in their, their uh, research uh, data. Among elders in the United States, and that's those age 70 or older, the ratio of those who are engaged with the Bible, they believe in the authority of Scripture. It's authoritative. The ratio of those who are engaged with the Bible to those who are skeptical is 4 to 1. vast majority of people right now in the United States of America, 70 and older, believe the Bible is authoritative. And the ratio is, is four to one towards those who are skeptical. But among the youngest generation of Americans today, and the book is dated 2016, so it's fairly recent, um, they categorize as millennials age 18 to 31, fewer than half believe the Bible is authoritative. And the ratio of Bible engagement to skepticism is one to two. So the typical person that we may meet uh, who is between the ages of 18 and 31, more likely than not, will be a skeptic in regard to the authority of the Bible rather than one who believes the Bible is authoritative. Now, what does all this mean for us? Fortunately, the Lord has never been dependent on having a majority in any culture or in any nation to get his kingdom work done. In fact, oftentimes in the Bible, he works with a very small group of people, but people who are totally committed. In the Old Testament, when he sent Gideon out to war, he said, Gideon, you've got far too many people. You've got you to reduce the number down to... To 300. Jesus chose 12 disciples, one of whom was a traitor, 
And he, had, he invested in them. It's an interesting thing that the gospel seems to be spreading far more rapidly in countries where there's persecution toward believers. So what should we, we make of all that as followers of Jesus who live here in the United States of America? Well, we, we have challenges ahead in order to reach our nation with the gospel, no doubt about it, but I think they're exciting challenges. They call for us to, to have a deeper understanding of and commitment to God's Word, the authority of Scripture. They call us to have a much greater reliance upon and engagement in prayer. It calls us to have a greater dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit into being filled with the Spirit, filled with His power. They call us to, to greater love and compassion for people, hurting people, lost people, needy people around us, and to a, a passion for personal evangelism. Every one of us taking the call of Jesus in the Great Commission and recognizing their people, Jesus calls me to reach with the gospel personally. People in my family, my neighborhood, my workplace. And so I think they're, they're exciting challenges. And they're not new. Because this has been the trend throughout history. It was true when the Apostle Paul wrote to his young son of the faith, Timothy. And in one of the most personal of all of his letters, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of 2 Timothy. And he wrote to Timothy, he said, you're living in a time when you're going to be persecuted for your faith. In fact, all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus, they're going to be persecuted. And he went on to say, evil people and deceivers, imposters, they're going to go from bad to worse. But you. He wrote the words you'll see on the screen, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 14. But as for you, continue in the things you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God, or inspired by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, Equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season, out of season. So what does he call Timothy to do? He says, I'm calling you back to the center, back to the foundation, back to the authoritative word of God, inspired by God, given to us. He said, preach it, proclaim it, be ready in and out of season. Be devoted to God and to His Word. And that is why as a church, we, our church, is committed to learning and loving and living out God's Word. And that pertains to children and students and adults. And if you're here and you don't know the Bible well yet, we're so glad you're here because we want to be a place where people can grow in their knowledge of the Bible regardless where they, where they are at this moment. 
may be entry level, having never read the Bible, we want to help you be able to understand it. It's part of our vision as a church. Now, for those of us who do know Jesus and are his followers, I would just raise this question by way of personal application. Let's ask ourselves this. Do I have a clear <clears throat> enough understanding of the foundational truths of the gospel that I could share them with someone else? If you worked with someone who said, why do you go to church anyway? What do you guys believe? Would you be able to explain that? Would you be able to share that? The Bible says always be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for a reason of the faith that you have. The Apostles' Creed is actually a very good way to do that. Maybe you never thought about using the Apostles' Creed to, to share your faith, to share what you believed. And you might even already have it memorized. Let's look at it on the screen just for a moment. And remember that the earliest record we have of essential Christian beliefs in creed form uh, is the Apostles' Creed. The word creed comes from the first words, I believe. The Latin word credo or uh, C-R-E-D-O means I believe. And let's walk through it just for a moment. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. Now, if you were like me, you immediately said, no, it's supposed to be maker of heaven and earth. Because that's the way I learned it as a kid growing up. And even today, when we say creator in church, I say maker in my own mind. Because that's just the way I learned it. It's not bad to update words, though, because it forces us to think through what they really mean, doesn't it? I believe in Jesus Christ. God's only Son, our Lord. So we have the Father, now we have the Son. And the creed's going to focus on the Son, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Why is that important? Why is that essential? We'll study that in the coming weeks. Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended to the dead. Well, I heard it. He descended to hell. We'll talk about that as time goes on too. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. You might rather say he sitteth at the right hand of the Father. If you learned it in the old King James language. And he will come again to judge the quick and the dead. The living and the dead. How many of you learned it saying quick rather than... But how many of you ever call something living quick instead of... Instead of Never. The living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. So I believe in the Father, I believe in the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Catholic Church. It's one of the questions people often ask. What does this mean? It simply means universal. The church universal over all time. The communion of saints. We'll talk about that. The forgiveness of sins. The resurrection of the body. And the life everlasting. Amen. I want to invite you now to recite the creed with me. Um, if we can go back to the beginning of it uh, on the screen. And I'll invite you to stand, uh, if you'd like, uh, with me. And let's recite the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, 
I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life of the living. Amen. Please be seated and join me as we pray. Father, we ask that this morning and in the weeks ahead, you would use your word as we study the teachings of this creed to shape us more fully into the people you'd have us to be. We pray that you would embolden us to share our faith with others. And I pray this morning for any here who don't truly know you yet, but just know about you that you would work in their hearts and lives with a great conviction of the need to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord, to embrace what he did on the cross in his saving work for them, that we might truly believe and become your devoted followers. And we ask this in the mighty name above all other names, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.